Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785, 201-472-0785, or go to your homepage, which I'm sure is askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the things the kids are using. And you can find out more about our upcoming guests. And nowadays, you can find me on TikTok, people. Yes, I am ticking and talking. And today I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and seriously, dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, greetings, Bill. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Always a pleasure to celebrate science. And, you know, when we do that, I, you know, I talk about science. I love science. I love the idea of science as this, you know, beautiful, objective set of information and facts that we learn about the world. Uh, but of course, science is not just a collection of facts. And, you know, science is a human process. Scientists are people. And that means that all the weirdnesses and injustices of the world and other areas do have a way of finding their way into science as well. Which is troubling. So our guest today is Dr. Dorothy Roberts. She's a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, and more recently, Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century. Dorothy Roberts, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Dorothy? Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. All right, let's just start with you. What is the fatal invention in the fatal invention book? It's the invention of race. I found that calling it an invention helps people understand that the idea that human beings are naturally divided into races is a completely made up concept. Often we talk about race being socially constructed, but working on the book, I found that there were people who thought, well, race is a biological category that's then interpreted differently in society by different societies. And it didn't really change their views about race being fundamentally biological. So I found if I said what it really is, which is an invention that people made up, 
it was then impossible to think of it as both biological and socially constructed. And so this is the idea that we discovered that everybody started, all humans started in Africa and they went all over the place over a few millennia. And here we all are, but we're all the same species. Nobody's going anywhere. Right. Well, not only did all human beings descend from Africans, and not only are we the same species, but at no point in human evolutionary history did the species break down into separate races. So it's important to make that point as well, because yes, we are very much genetically the same, you know, 99.9% or at least 99.5% the same. But there still is the important point that the difference is not broken down by race. So we originated, evolved into the human species in Africa, and human populations have traveled around the globe. They have developed into different groupings, but those groupings cannot be divided into races. There's no point in the globe or in human history where you can find a breakdown of four or five or six groups that today we call races. That idea was made up. It was made up by what we would nowadays call racists. Back then they were called the uh, Enlightenment thinkers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's be clear that they were called the most advanced and prominent scientists of their time. In fact, we can trace the origin of the idea of race to the very beginning of what we now call Western science, the Enlightenment era. And race was incorporated into Enlightenment thinking, you know, what we call scientific thinking, from a prior theological view that God created the races. And that was imported virtually wholesale into Enlightenment thought. But hold on, it just sounds like somebody was working backwards. I don't like that other tribe, so uh, it's God. God who said it. That's what it is. We're shaping our philosophy, our outlook, based on what we kind of want, because we're afraid of the other tribe. That is so true. So actually, you have landed on at a very important point that a lot of people don't understand, which is that racism doesn't come from race. In other words, it's not that we're divided into races and then people don't like people who are associated with another race. It's that first was the idea not to like some another group. And actually, let's be more specific. It was to colonize. It was to enslave. It was to conquer. It was to dispossess other people of their lands. And that necessitated the invention of race. Is it just human nature to go tribe against tribe? Uh, or is it human nature to go colonized versus colonizer? Well, I, I kind of have a problem talking about this being human nature, because I want to believe that we don't have to live our lives as racists or uh, believing that human beings are naturally divided into races. But I would say that there is a long history of people in one group fighting with people in another group and disliking them because of those fights. 
But racism is different, though. And race is different because race says that all people ever born, you know, ever born in the future, are born into one of a handful of groups. And those groups are naturally divided. You cannot move from one group to the other. It's a natural birthright that you have, and you cannot change it. And it determines and predicts various important aspects of your identity, your personality, your uh, opportunities, and your achievements in life. That's different. That's different from, you know, having an enemy. Well, now, yeah, hold on. I want to press down a little bit more on this point about, about race, because I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I don't know if you've noticed, but some people on Twitter are a little opinionated, maybe a little bit obstinate. I mean, one, one of the frequent responses is basically, I know race is real because I can see it. I mean, that's, that is a very common sort of instinctual yes. uh, you know, roadblock that people put up. What you're saying is what you see is not actually biologically significant. And maybe you can just kind of like decode that a little bit. Okay, this is what I would say. What you see that you think identifies race and something uh, at a natural division that wasn't created, it's just out there in nature, is actually determined by laws and customs and social norms. Uh, So if you see someone who has dark skin, let's say, and um, a certain type of hair and certain facial features, the reason why you can identify that person as belonging to a particular race is because you've been taught that. It's There's nothing natural to say, for example, that a dark-skinned person from uh, Detroit is a different race from a dark-skinned person from uh, Mumbai. You know, we think of them as being different races because we've been taught what to look for to determine what are makes them different. So even if we take something like skin color, which we know is determined by certain adaptations that occur around the same part of the globe, right? If you go around the globe, That's linked now to an idea of race because skin color has been made to be important. But we don't think it actually tells you what race someone is by itself. We'll then look for other factors that explain it. One way of looking at this is, and I I don't think this is necessarily the most important example because I actually think that all human beings are mixtures of different uh, populations and ancestries, But let's just look at the idea of someone who has one parent who's black and one parent who's white. They may look like both their parents, but because we've been taught that that person is black, for example, Barack Obama, you know, is a black man with a white mother rather than a white man with a black father. Now, both of those could be true. But because of our definition of race in the United States in particular, people don't think that could possibly be true. And so they will say he looks like his father and he's black. 
he also looks like his mother. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. he could also yeah. be called white. So why would someone say, I can look at him and see he's black, even though he has a white mother? Only because of the rule that has developed in the United States, which, by the way, was developed to support white supremacy. Because with that rule, white slaveholders could sexually assault female slaves and their children could be enslaved. If that wasn't the rule, there would be a whole lot of people going around today who we think of as black, who in the 1600s could not be enslaved. And we wouldn't yeah, have this idea yeah. of pure white race. Right. So the, let me ask you this, though. You know, Australia had, until 1973, had a rule not letting people of recent African descent show up in Australia. So it wasn't unique to the United States, but it, it yes. was connected to the slave trade. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Well, ideas about race have emanated from Europe beginning in the 16th century um, then being, wow, that's quite a while ago. It is a while ago. Uh, yeah. Well, in a way, you could say it's a while ago, and we've had this idea of race for centuries. You could also say it's not that long ago in human history. You know, that's we, true. we could yeah. say we because we can identify when this concept began. We can also look at the way in which it's been reinforced over the centuries, ways in which it's changed over the centuries. And I think that gives us hope to say, well, actually, we could abolish this idea as well. Or, uh, it or will phase it out. Let's phase go, right? it this, out this weekend. How about November 2nd? <laughs> right. Well, you're right. We can't, we can't do away with it entirely because race is still... It is an important governing force in our society. And I think in science, for example, I think we have to get rid of the idea that's still very prominent in science, that it's a natural biological category. So you've dealt with this, right? You're trying to get scientists or scientific journals and so on to let go of this old problem. So if I understand... Yes. It, well, I would say that it is infused throughout Western science. It's infused in medical education. In most medical schools, students are taught to identify the race of patients and that then they should gear their diagnoses and their therapies according to the race of the patient. There's something... And these are people who think they're doing something positive. Oh, they think, yes, they think that they need to take race into account to properly treat patients. But what they're actually doing is using racial stereotypes that are harmful to patients, or they're using race as a proxy for something that's actually more important and thereby not paying attention to what's more important. What's an example of that? Well, one example is something I'm working on right now, and actually there are hospitals around the country working on getting rid of it, is something called race correction, where diagnostic algorithms automatically adjust primarily for Black patients. So I'll give you an example, which is something I'm working on right now, is the adjustment or correction for something called glomerular filtration rate, which is an indicator of kidney function. And it measures a protein in the blood. I won't get too complicated, but it, it is key to determining 
whether or not the patient is at risk for kidney disease. Now, there's a certain amount of this protein in the blood of an individual patient. The test automatically changes the number if the patient is black. It adjusts upward, which is a healthier number. Now, in the past, the idea was that we needed this adjustment because black people as a race have higher muscle mass than people of other races. And so because it's filtered through muscle, you know, because it goes through muscle, that means that you would have to adjust for someone with greater muscle mass and it's just assumed black people have it. So even if we go with that, which is now pretty much discredited, instead of using muscle mass to adjust it, race is being used as a proxy for muscle mass. Obviously, it's worse to treat all Black people as if they have a higher muscle mass than all other human beings than to just look at the muscle mass. You know, even looking looking at the patient would be a better indicator than using their race. Stick around for more science rules after this. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Science Rules is back. So here's the question then. What are we going to do about it? And so along that line, I'd like to play a voicemail, which I, and you'll respond, as we say nowadays, on the other side. My name is Noah. I'm calling from Tacoma, Washington. I'm curious what your thoughts are, Ms. Roberts, on the long history of racism in fields like gynecology, sociology, psychology, as it, I guess, is linked to pseudosciences that were only recently in the last few decades proven to be not of any use, eugenics, uh, phrenology, things of that nature. What are your thoughts on how we can change those things and give people the appropriate historical representation, especially when it comes to what we're teaching uh, individuals now, since those individuals that were responsible for a lot of that poor information being put out we're still teaching well into the 1970s and 1980s. Wow, it's a lot of a lot to chew on. That's, there. <laughs> that's a lot to chew on. So I would say that he is absolutely correct that we can trace the current use of race as a biological category in medicine. You know, as if it were. It really isn't, but as if it were, to practices that originated in slavery, race correction is an idea that originates in slavery. So during the slavery era, people like Samuel Cartwright, who was trained at my home institution, University of Pennsylvania, 
created this idea that Black people have peculiar diseases and experience common diseases in peculiar ways. And they, he used the term peculiar. And he came up with all sorts of ways in which Black people's bodies operated differently. One was the idea that Black people have lower lung capacity. And another was that they have a mental disorder that causes them to flee plantations. His logic was Black people are only healthy when they're enslaved, so they must be crazy if they want to escape it. So, all, But all of this was built on the idea that Black people have bodies that operate distinctively differently from all other human beings' bodies. Measurably differently, right? Yeah. Measurably differently. Okay, that is the same. I'm telling you, you can look back at Samuel Cartwright's articles that he wrote back in the 1850s. And some of the language describes race correction today. The idea that that Black people's bodies are categorically different. So you've got to automatically adjust for them because they don't operate like other human beings. And that's what race correction does today. Uh, And we can find that in all of those fields that the caller mentioned in psychiatry, in uh, gynecology. Uh, and, and let me also mention that along with these ideas about Black bodily difference comes a practice of experimenting on Black bodies. Oh, man. And, oh, you know, Mayor, Dr. Marion Sims, for example, who has been heralded as the father of gynecology, perfected his treatments and his procedures on the bodies of enslaved African women who could not give consent. That was inconceivable that you would have to seek consent from somebody who's considered to be your property and were not given anesthesia during these very painful uh, experiments. So creepy. Yeah, it's very creepy. But, you know, where does this idea come from? It comes from both the devaluation of Black people, but also you know, what Corey was mentioning before, this perverse idea that doctors and biomedical researchers are actually helping by treating Black bodies as if they are categorically different. Uh, Just recognizing and appreciating differences and then using that to justify Uh, all kinds of things. Exactly. Well, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which was funded by the federal government, this was a federal program that included over 600 black sharecroppers who had syphilis uh, and they were not given available treatments so that they would die from the disease so that the scientists and the doctors could see how syphilis ran through their bodies differently. But the whole idea was that they assumed that it had a different progression in Black people's bodies. So again, they justify this as, well, we want to be able to understand the differences in syphilis in the Black body. And so actually this is helping them when in fact they affirmatively were harming them by not giving them the treatments and basing the whole experiment on a false view of humanity. So... I'd like to talk about what we're going to do about it. And for yes. that, I'd like to roll this voicemail from okay. Kane. Hi, Bill Nye. What, if anything at all, is the scientific community trying to do to spread awareness about the fact that race is not biological? Thank you. 
Right. So how do, how do we make progress and are we making progress? Yeah, I think we are making progress in the sense that this idea is getting more and more attention, that race is not a biological category. And I think also there's more willingness to criticize science when it's wrong. <laughs> it's true that science can be extremely helpful. We want to have scientific approaches to problems. But if the scientists themselves are promoting false views of humanity, it has the opposite effect. It blocks innovation. And this is something I like to talk to biomedical scientists and uh, doctors and others in the health profession about, which is to say, the way you are using race now is actually hindering. It's suppressing innovation. You want to be at the cutting edge. You want to develop therapies and approaches to health problems that really come up with good solutions, effective solutions. Using race to automatically correct you know, for the results of tests and to use it as a proxy for more uh, important indicators of health is hindering. It's a, it's a, it blocks innovation. You're re relying on an idea that is backward, that's antiquated, that we can trace to pre-modern ideas about humanity. So I think one very powerful way of addressing this is to get scientists to see that what they're doing not only is harmful, and I try to point this out all the time, the harms caused by race-based research in medicine, but it also is stifling better, more innovative solutions, more better cures, better ways of addressing health inequities. So how um, do you do that? How do you get your word out? All right. So, I mean, I personally do lots of talks <laughs> to students. Uh, at Penn, I teach a course called Race, Science, and Justice to Undergraduates. And I like to attract STEM students, pre-med students who are not, not learning this in their courses. And I think we really have to look at better ways of integrating social sciences and humanities into science, you know, what's called the hard scientists or the biological scientists. This gets into the mythic thing, the liberal arts education, where you're free to think. Liberal arts. Yes, so <laughs> there is a problem, I think, with medical training and scientific training in the sense that it's very narrowly focused. And I have to say, there's a lot of arrogance around it. Uh, I get the response all the time. Who are you? are a sociologist and a legal scholar. You know, what do you have nothing to say about this? And I try to remind them, I know so much more about race and racism than you ever learned in your courses. You need to be educated and they need to open up their willingness to learn about what they're doing wrong and their misunderstandings of race, their ignorance of structural racism because they haven't been taught about it. And so I think having a more interdisciplinary liberal arts approach to the STEM trajectories and the pre-med trajectories are, you know, that's really, really important. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a mechanical engineer and there was, we had to take a few liberal arts courses and I did, but 
you can't have enough. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. And what else? What about uh, sort of at the more nuts and bolts level? I mean, are there things you can address just in the way, let's say, medical trials are designed, or yes. you know, or or FDA standards, or things like that, just so that people don't automatically think that everything is defined in terms of racial categories. Yes. So that's another area is the ways in which funding shapes research designs. And you just mentioned two critical federal agencies that have a lot of sway over how people design and structure their research, the Food and Drug Administration and the National Institutes of Health. And they both fail at directing researchers in a way that uh, counters the biological concept of race. They have very confusing uh, guidelines for researchers. So, for example, NIH requires for some clinical trials that the researcher recruit participants looking at race. And then they use the categories that the census uses. So to have these uniform racial categories that are used throughout federal agencies, including agencies that fund science. But those categories, as we all know, are social categories. They literally change every time there's a census. And by not explaining better to researchers that we're, these are social categories, you do not have to use them in designing your research study in a way that has a biological assumption of race in it. You're right. You're right. Uh, so what I'd like to do is talk about software. And I'm not kidding. Can we roll that voice? This is fab. I think this is going to tie in. Hey, Bill. My question pertains to bias when it comes to artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, more specifically, uh, the image recognition, picking out, I guess, criminals and, and things like that, um, tend to be, I guess, skewed more towards picking African-Americans and identifying them as potential uh, criminals and also misidentifying them and other things like that. Yeah, well, this is an important area of science that touches just about everything we do. Uh, there is more and more reliance on artificial intelligence, especially predictive analytics, algorithms that predict the risk that individuals and groups pose for various kinds of outcomes, whether we're talking about uh, committing crimes defaulting on loans or being a good employee. Predictive analytics is used in just about every institution, both public and private now in the United States. And the caller is absolutely right that they embed racism in various ways. Uh, one is in the data that they use. Uh, we have to understand that algorithms are not neutral. Uh, race developed. in, race out, as we right, say. Exa or exactly. Maybe we should say. Yeah. We should. So, yes, there's this idea of garbage in, garbage out, inequality in, inequality out, racism in, racism out. If, for example, a police department is using an algorithm to determine what neighborhood is going to commit crime in the future. So we need to literally, some are knock on the doors of people in the neighborhood and ask the, you know, interrogate them. Well, if the database you're using is filled with data of arrests, 
that were the result of racial profiling because we know that police officers go into certain neighborhoods and stop and frisk people. Uh, They stop and frisk Black and Latinx people at far higher rates than white people. Then already the data you're using to determine who is most likely to be arrested in the future embeds this prior inequality. So So this goes way back, right? This goes back, back, back. You've written about crack babies, right? Yes, yes. Okay, well, that's that's another example of scientists. I, I remember those stories yeah. you know, back, in the, back in the 80s. There's this whole generation of crack babies. They're going to grow up disadvantaged. There was no controversy. This was just sort of understood as a fact. That somehow yes, crack right. was different from regular old cocaine. Yes, yes. So, And it's interesting how that relates to prediction because these children were predicted to have all these terrible outcomes. It was predicted, you know, by scientists and by doctors that children exposed to crack cocaine in particular, and these were black children, black babies, would end up failing school. They would end up becoming welfare dependent and welfare cheats, and they would end up becoming criminals. So where does that idea come from? The only way you can explain it is the racist ideas about Black people being innately predisposed to these bad outcomes that the researchers and doctors implicitly believed. And think about how it shaped the research in really bad and unscientific ways. They would look at babies born to mothers who use crack cocaine and assume that the behaviors of these babies, the health problems they had, and certain kinds of developmental issues came from the, their exposure to crack cocaine. Well, Their today, mother's exposure. Their the, pre- mother's the premise exposure. was the kid would be born with this addiction, right? Yes, but that, but that this particular drug by these particular mothers yeah, would produce fret, fret, fret boys and sorority girls uh, doing cocaine did not seem to have those problems Right, somehow. but this was never said about drug use during pregnancy, which we know even at the time crossed all sorts of racial and socioeconomic lines. It wasn't exclusive to Black neighborhoods. And yet these ideas only applied to Black babies. And they were these kind of biochemical ideas, like ideas of uh, crack cocaine deprived mothers of maternal instinct, you know, that it had this biological this is, effect. Uh, on working them. backwards, yeah. <laughs> right, so, yes. right, so here, here was an actual experiment. So that, there was the prediction. What actually happened to that generation of babies? Well, there's research that done at, at uh, Penn. Uh, now some good research coming out of the University of Pennsylvania, actually looking at the children now that they have grown up from the 80s, and comparing them to other children in their neighborhoods who were not exposed in utero. And what the researchers found is that they pretty much are the same. No correlation at all. No correlation. The the harms that the children experienced and, and these babies experienced were from 
the deprivations that the mothers had, uh, that all mothers in their neighborhoods had. They had, they didn't have access to high quality nutrition. They didn't have access to high quality prenatal care. They didn't have access to high quality drug treatment. And importantly, there was racism in the reporting of the mother's drug use so that black mothers, one study found black mothers were 10 times more likely to be reported by doctors to child welfare authorities. What happens when you report the baby gets taken away from you? And so black babies were more likely to be removed from their mothers and boarded at the hospital. Now that we know causes developmental problems for children. They would have been much better off if they were kept with their mothers. And white babies who were exposed to drugs were much more likely in this one study that came out of Florida, 10 times more likely to be able to stay with their mothers and that's why they had better outcomes. So it's a combination. It's widespread is what you're saying. It's widespread it's- and it's a combination of structural inequities that are already existing in our society that that's what predicts for the bad outcomes. Science Rules will be right back. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You're listening to Science Rules. A lot of this discussion inherently and reasonably has gone about, me- we've talked about medicine, medical outcomes. Yes. Because we're talking about people and people are animals and here we are. But you're, if I understand it, it's in all science. Yes, that's right. So I think we need to explore more the way the concept of biological race, which has been embedded, deeply embedded and influential in science for hundreds of years has affected the way science operates broadly. And so it it may also affect environmental science and uh, veterinary, veterinary science and physics. You know, it may. I haven't studied that, but I do think that the focus on innate causes and as opposed to structural causes, environmental causes, and the idea of determinism, uh, which is related to it, that there's some natural force that determines an outcome, and the idea of classification, that the only way to understand a problem is to classify. Well, that's know, Western the, science, man. We break Western it down. Sci- Re- exactly. Reductionism. Yeah. Well, so how do we know that the way in which race was so important from the very origins of Western science, the the idea that classifying human beings into this hierarchy of races, and this is something I should have mentioned earlier, it's usually in a hierarchy. And it's usually, if it's Western scientists or white scientists doing it, that white people are at the top. 
But whichever scientist is in charge, you know, usually makes their group at the top of the hierarchy. Okay, all of these ideas that have been in science from its inception surely have an influence on what we even think is good science. And we won't know how science might be designed or even thought about differently if we got rid of this notion that the only way to understand human beings is to categorize them and classify them by race. Well, see, I think this is such an important idea because, you know, people often pay lip service to, oh, diversity is important because we need to get more people involved or, you know, we need to be fair. And those things obviously are are true. I mean, you need to be fair. You want to be inclusive. But every field that I've seen that becomes more open, that becomes more inclusive, that allows a wider range of perspectives, it generates new ideas. You know, it, it sort well, of breaks out some of these. Yeah, it breaks out these. It breaks out these kind faster. of these, yeah. these iced-in yeah. ways of thinking. And, and what you're describing right now, in some ways, I feel like I don't even. It's hard to even imagine what a different kind of science might look like because we're so used to just one way of doing it. Right. I absolutely agree. That was the point I was making about medicine, that using race as a proxy for all sorts of more important indicators about people and patients is a hindrance to innovation. I think that's true more broadly about science. I see race as shackling scientists, you know, as as preventing innovation. And that's why it's so strange when scientists will respond to, you know, my talk or my book and say, well, that would be unscientific to not do it the way we've been doing it. And it's just incredible to me how race becomes this sticking point that people don't want to go past when they're willing to be innovative in so many other areas. And they recognize that innovation is critical to good science. And yet, holding on to these categories that literally were created in pre-modern times that were then brought into Enlightenment science in the 1600s. It's incredible. (laughs) Well, look, look, let me ask you this. Do you have hope? Can we change it all? Yes. I think we are at a really important, exciting point where because of political organizing and activism, there is pressure and inspiration to take a more critical look at what all institutions are doing, including science. And I've always said when people you know, ask me, well, what can we do? How can we make a difference in our institution? I point out that it has to be a combination of making good scientific arguments with evidence But there also has to be organizing of people who want to see change and justice. And being able to connect social justice and science as being compatible and getting rid of this idea that if you say you want to promote social justice, somehow you're being ideological and and, uh, not objective, we have to move towards seeing that science can be socially just and that that makes it more innovative. Uh, we all, it's a win-win. 
It's a win-win. It absolutely is. I feel like this is another you know, tough idea to push back on because there are people who push this agenda very hard that, oh, if you're talking about diversity, you're talking about affirmative action, you're talking about lowering standards, you're talking about allowing inferior people in. It's, a, it's, a, it's an argument that escalates very quickly. And you know, it requires a concerted effort to push back on that. It, it, it absolutely does. But one way of pushing back on it is to show this history of how racism has been embedded in science and how it's produced ineffective, unscientific, and monstrously unjust outcomes. And if we want science to be uh, uh, a practice that advances knowledge, you know, that moves forward, that comes up with better solutions, then you have to get rid of this idea that it's neutral because it never has been neutral. <laughs> We're just now trying to make up for all the ways in which racist ideas in science have held science back. So here we have good scientific research as well that shows that the healthiest, the happiest societies are the most equal societies. And we know for a fact that the inequality in our society has hindered innovation. It's hindered health. It's hindered well-being. We can see this right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Why in the world is the United States, which is supposed to be so advanced scientifically and in terms of health care, why do we have such abysmal numbers of deaths? It's because we don't have a science and a healthcare system that see equity and justice as essential aspects of it. If we saw it as, having value. as valuable, it's not just a matter of being ideological or politically correct. It's actually a matter of having better outcomes for everybody. So we got one more voicemail. And this one, I'll just tell everybody, this one's long. Let's roll that digital recording. Good morning. I'm Rebecca. And this voicemail is regarding racism in science. My question is based off of personal experiences, so I'll quickly sum up some details for you. I am a pretty fair-skinned black woman, and as early as elementary school, I got bullied from white and black kids. I'd literally get teased about my black hair and big lips from one person and then turn around and get told by another person to go play with them because I wasn't quote-unquote, really black. My childhood dream was to get into planetary science, be an astronomer, but it was shot down by other children and adults who told me it wasn't really an industry for African Americans. And truth be told, I didn't see a lot of people who look like me going up to space. While my mother did raise me to treat everyone the same, it seemed clear to me at a young age that I wouldn't be treated in kind. So that mixed with low self-esteem sent me drifting in search for another career goal. Currently, I am a nursing assistant, primarily for elderly and disabled residents, which I love. <laughs> I do also still love all kinds of science, and especially planetary science. And I want to make sure that children out there with a scientific career goal know that they can not only follow that dream, but that the corresponding field or the leaders in that corresponding field will welcome them. So here's my question. As just a fellow human being 
who still, even as of yesterday, gets teased about not being white and not being black and told that I don't really belong or couldn't possibly relate to the struggles of either community, what can I do to help break down racist barriers? Like more specifically, where does my voice fit in? Thank you so much for all that you guys are doing, and thank you for this episode. I can't wait to hear it. Take care. If I may, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. She raises lots of different points, but one that I think is really important is the way in which these racist stereotypes have blocked entry of Black people and other marginalized people into the sciences. There is definitely an idea that Black people aren't smart enough, aren't rational enough to be good scientists. And this goes back to very old stereotypes, again, coming out of slavery, that one of the factors that distinguishes white people and Black people is intellectual capacity, especially the idea of being rational. And it's interesting she mentions planetary sciences because there was a dispute between Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Banneker, the astro- uh, who was an astronomer. He's a hero of mine, yes. I gotta yes. say. My dad loved Benjamin Banneker. Yes. He's a big so, astronomer. Yeah. Interesting correspondence between the two, where Banneker wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson castigating him for treating Black people so poorly and promoting stereotypes about Black people because Jefferson wrote that the reason why Black people couldn't participate equally in democracy was because of the differences that nature hath made. And I think it's so important, going back to what I've been saying, this idea that because of so-called biological natural differences between the races, that explains why we have these inequalities in society. Thomas Jefferson wrote back, that if he only saw evidence, you know, that black people oh, actually were, yeah. you know, intellectually. So everybody, it, <laughs> Benjamin Banneker was uh, an astronomer, but he was a surveyor, which is very common. He was uh, good at math. Yeah. And so Washington, D.C. is laid out in this uh, perfect square or diamond. So the guy started with this one place and surveyed this perfect square from this one place because he understood what he was doing mathematically. And that's Benjamin Banneker. That's the guy that, uh, that Dorothy's referring to in this correspondence with Thomas Jefferson. Doggone it. TJ, Thomas Jefferson, what more evidence do you need? You got Benjamin freaking Banneker. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's ridiculous. And then, you know, Jefferson later writes, well, I think something like, you know, he has something going for him, but uh, he's not equivalent, you know, to white uh, he, he computed, yeah. you know, he did an almanac. He computed sunrise yes. and sunset within a few fractions of a minute, you know, just in 17, whatever the heck. Right, right. And he's self-taught. He's self-taught, self-taught guy. And, freaking and, amazing. And in a society that believed that black people were not human and could be enslaved. To me, that shows the remarkable capacity of African people to be scientists. And you know, the capacity we, of, for denial. 
that and somebody like Thomas Jefferson, who was so thoughtful about so many other things, right, just exactly. couldn't see the forest for the trees. Or exactly. Including so, so thoughtful on the idea of human rights, but only up to a point. Yeah. Yes, only for some people. And then he justified it by saying, well, race is natural, so therefore I'm just compelled to uh, leave Black people out. So Becca's point about how she was deterred from being a planetary scientist because of her race is really, really important. And again, goes to what we've been talking about innovation. Imagine what we are losing in terms of innovation because of the barriers to people of color entering the sciences, which go back to these stereotypes which arise from the very biological concept of race. I think, you know, we can keep going back and back and back. Where do these ideas come from? I think they all originate in the biological concept of race, which was invented in order to support racism and white supremacy. And slavery. And slavery. And slavery. So So do you have any advice for Becca? Well, for one thing, I think it's great that she called in. I think she has a very compelling voice, a very compelling story, and I think her sharing it with people helps a lot. Corey, do you hear that? Wow, it's a rumble. It sounds like thunder. Oh, I think it's thunder. If it sounds like thunder, then it must be time for the lightning round. What is the most common misconception about your work? That my work having to do with social injustice is not related to scientific research. Whereas it's all science is what it's my, all my impression is. And, and it makes what people typically think of science, which is just, you know, the biological or hard sciences, better. If you weren't studying racism, what would you be studying? Sexism. How do you keep from burning out? How do you stick with this? This is heavy stuff that must be just discouraging at every turn. I keep in close touch with people who are on the ground in grassroots organizations and other kinds of organizations who are advocating for change. And when they tell me that my work inspires them or helps them in some way, that makes me feel great and want to keep going. There you go. What would you tell a class of graduating medical students to help them combat this racism that's baked in? Understand that race is a political invention and not a biological category. And imagine, be willing to imagine how you could understand human beings and and including your patients without relying on false concepts of race. There you go. All right. Last lightning question. What's your next book going to be about? What's your next area of study? Uh, Okay. I, I happen to be working on a book right now which is about the so-called foster care or child welfare system. I am highlighting the racism in that system and calling for abolition of a system that relies on taking children away from their families and instead imagines a more supportive way of caring for children and families. There you go. Thank you so much. Thank you, You're Dorothy, welcome. for joining You're us today. You're welcome. Our guest today has been Dr. Dorothy Roberts. She's a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, and Fatal Invention, 
how science, politics, and big business recreate race in the 21st century. Now remember, when it comes to acknowledging our failures and doing everything we can to fix them, science science rules. If you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us know what you want to hear. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, and I hope you do, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question to askbillnye.com, which I'm sure is your homepage. All right, Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Corey, Dorothy, Science Science Rules. Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.